So like, let's say you're pregnant. That's why you're listening to the birth story podcast and you're preparing for a hospital birth that's upcoming. And of course, this podcast gives you tons of free information, right? But do you really understand the stages of labor? How to know when you're in labor? What if you have to have an induction? What about a cesarean section? What about all of the decisions that you have to make once you get to the hospital? So you get there and then they put you in triage. Birth Story Academy walks you through all the things that happen, like that rapid fire with like monitoring and blood work and questions and IV ports and do you want an epidural? I don't know. Do you? In Birth Story Academy, we literally break down all of those decisions, pros, cons, risks, benefits, intuition, and like we get into it. We make birth plans, we do birth visions, we listen to birth affirmations and parenting affirmations. And at the end of it, like you know exactly what's going to happen when you go into labor and when you get to the hospital. What's going to happen after you give birth? Newborn care preferences, how to take care of your baby. So I guess what I'm getting at is if you're not in Birth Story Academy, what's your plan? Like, I want to be your teacher. I want you to come join me in Birth Story Academy and let me walk you through all of the decisions that you have to make if you're having a hospital birth and how to have body autonomy and how to have informed consent and informed refusal. I'm going to teach you and your partner, if you have one, everything that you need to know about birthing in a hospital so that you can walk in that door with some swagger, with some confidence, like wash that anxiety away because you learned everything you needed to learn in Birth Story Academy and you are ready to crush that birth. Okay, let's do it. And let's get to this episode. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Hey guys, it's Heidi. And today's episode is with Lauren Mackle of Co-Fertility. It is a very, very cool story of entrepreneurship born out of just superb passion for the fertility journey that Lauren went on. And she's got some pretty cool co-founders as well with really smart, innovative, intuitive ideas and really compassionate care for a fertility journey. Co-fertility is doing everything different when it comes to egg retrieval, egg donation, egg 
storage and matching with intended parents and affordability. So we dig into a lot in this episode. I hope that you will share it with anyone you know that's on a fertility journey or that may be at a point in life where they are looking at storing their eggs and egg retrieval for so many reasons. I hope you'll share this episode. It's really exciting. It's packed full of information on fertility. And oh, I'm just so excited for what co-fertility is doing. Thanks for being here. Let's get to it. Hey, Lauren Mackler, welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. Yes, I am too. So as I alluded to the audience in the introduction, we're going to be talking about fertility, specifically Lauren's company, Co-Fertility, and how it can support many intended parents on their fertility journeys. But we're also going to get into it with Lauren today, right? Like, how did this even happen? So Lauren, tell us a little bit, where are you located and a little bit about who you are? Yeah. I live in Los Angeles with my husband and daughter and I'm originally an East coaster though. So I'm from Rhode Island, lived in Boston for 10 years, um, found my way out to the West coast. I was an early employee at Uber. And so started by launching um, new markets across the East coast way back in the day and made my way to the San Francisco headquarters. And that's what brought me out West. Um, and then the pandemic was like, Oh, we don't want to live in San Francisco anymore. And most of my family had actually migrated to the LA area. So we were like, let's check it out. And so far, so good. No regrets about that. So, um, yeah, I, I love living close to family. I love spending time with my kid, um, and building a business in this space is something that, um, just like brings me a different kind of fulfillment than I thought I'd ever be able to get. Through work. It is so true. And that's something I really try to bring home on this podcast is that it is possible to be both a parent and to have passions and to be able to build a business. So to tackle that today is oh yeah. It's so exciting, right? Um, how old is your daughter? She is two. two. She turned two at the end of May. And it's interesting. I sort of look at our company in the lens of her life. Uh, Mm -hmm. We pitched our biggest investors on her six month birthday. I remember not being able to go to her pediatrician appointment. And it was like heartbreaking for me because I had one meeting with an investor and then my husband FaceTimed me from the pediatrician so I could be there for the appointment. And then I had another meeting after that. So I just think about it sort of in terms of her like six month increment. That's when I decided to build a company when I yep. had toddlers. So mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of barriers to entry to doing our own thing. But if it's on our heart, we've got to go for it. So mm-hmm. let's talk about how this got onto your heart, building a yeah. company around fertility and exactly what co-fertility does. It's interesting. I always knew I wanted to be a mom. Okay. Like, I'm just one of those people who I, I'm so close with my own mom and wanted to have that relationship again in my life. Right. I wanted to have like the flip side of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, it was actually years ago in 2017, I had just started dating my now husband. So maybe we're like two months, three months into dating when I woke up one morning with a pain in my side and, um, 
thought something was wrong and it turns out I was right. Um, I had a bunch of testing done and it turned out that I had masses growing everywhere throughout my abdomen and pelvis. And a further diagnostic testing showed that I'm one of 154 people on the planet to ever have this disease. Thankfully, it is a benign disease, but these masses can like cut off the functioning of your organs if left to their own devices. And so pretty problematic in that way. Um, and I was told I'd have to have a number of surgeries to remove the disease and that there was a good chance I would lose my ovaries. Okay. And so you got to pause right there. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That's yeah. how old were you? I was 29, 29 years old and you wake up in pain. Yeah. And then your whole life is just flipped upside totally down. Totally upside down. Okay. Yep. Now healthcare in the United States is something that like, um, I'm quite familiar with, right? I worked in pharmaceutical companies and for medical device companies. It's not quite easy to arrive at a very rare diagnosis. Yes. I'm thinking you have an appendicitis, right? Like how did they get to you and 154 other people? Was that a long time? So I got incredibly lucky, right? So there, I've now been in touch with some other people who have this disease, which is a miracle in and of itself. But I got so lucky that there was someone working the day I went in for my diagnostic surgery, a pathologist who had seen my disease one time in his 30 year career. And so he recognized it immediately because it like, presents as this weird, like grape-like clusters of cysts almost, which is like so specific that he was like, I've seen this before. I know what it is. And then when he like, it occurred to him what it was, he was able to then look it up and confirm. Whereas other people who I've spoken to, it takes like a year or two to find the diagnosis. So I got lucky. Okay. So first things first, how did they resolve the pain? they removed the disease. Okay. They had so, to, to, it was basically like pushing up against my organs Okay, and they had to get rid of it so that they could like make more room for my organs. How close to your ovaries and your uterus? On my ovaries and my uterus. On, on like throughout my peritoneal cavity, like everywhere. Okay. Like no, no uh, area left like untouched basically. Okay. Thankfully it was on my organs and not in my organs. Okay. So was this like ER visit to CT scan to No, this was like started with primary care. Thankfully the pain was on the same side as my appendix. So they were like, no, let's do an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Then it was like, oh, you need a CT scan. Oh, you need to see an oncologist. You need a diagnostic surgery. And it happened like within days, like two, it was so scary. Okay. Within a couple of days. And you're yeah. dating this guy for like two months. Yeah. Is he like, bye? Who like, <laughs> I had a feeling he was the one. Okay. He probably didn't have that feeling quite yet. Okay. But he, I think when you go through stuff like this with someone and you see how they respond, mm-hmm. that's when you know, right? And yes. so he met my parents a lot sooner than expected because they came out for my surgery and he just like showed up, you know? Yeah. And so- but back to this this story, right? You hear, okay, you're going to go in for this diagnostic surgery. You have to sign this paperwork saying if we need to take out your reproductive organs, you're cool with it, right? And so that was mm-hmm. the first time I was sort of faced with 
will I be able to become a mom through my own genetics? Okay. And here's where the pause is. Did they say, well, hold on. We could pause this surgery for 30 days and do an egg retrieval and freeze your eggs. It was no, No. it was no. They thought, so the imaging like CT scan basically was like, this is bad. Like they thought I had like horrible ovarian cancer based on what they could see from the imaging. So I had to have surgery that week. However, and they didn't take out my reproductive organs. They figured out it wasn't horrible ovarian cancer. Thank God. Right. Mm -hmm. But they then said, look, like we don't know much about this disease. It's so rare. Like we think you're okay, but we don't really know. And so then I set down this path of like finding experts in the disease to figure out like, well, what should I do next? And so at that point, I knew I needed to have another surgery because they were like, oh, they didn't remove it all. Like this disease is kind of behaves weirdly. And so we need to do another surgery. At that point, I saw a fertility doctor who specializes in rare diseases and said, Hey, should I freeze my eggs before the surgery? And after reading a bunch of studies, we, we didn't know what there have been record, like some, maybe six or seven people out of the 154 where this disease turns super malignant, spontaneous transformation, they say, and we don't know what causes that. And so they were afraid to give me the hormones of an egg retrieval because they didn't know if that would make the disease worse. Okay. So we did not freeze my eggs. However, at that point, me being a, a planner, I was like, okay, well, what would my options be? And it seemed like egg donation was what it would be if I needed it and, you know, got to that. And that's when I looked at egg donation for the first time. Okay. So you're 29 years old yeah, in a new relationship and now contemplating your fertility. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. maybe you didn't know was on the table two months earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and when I looked at egg donation for the first time, mm-hmm. I was really surprised by what I saw. It felt to me very transactional and, you know, you pay someone $10,000 for their eggs in addition to the cost of the egg retrieval and all of that. Or, but like, if you want to get more specific rather like, oh, you know, I'm Jewish. I want a Jewish egg donor. The cash compensation goes up and up and up and up. Right. Or if you want someone who has like specific set of traits, whether physical characteristics or um, in their background or in their studies or whatever it might be, the cash compensation goes up, which to me just was like, what year is it that we're still allowing like people to have prices, right? Like that just, it felt really weird to me, especially when like we don't buy organs, right? Like, why is it that this is something that is so different? Mm-hmm. I also thought it was like weird that you would, you know, this like idea of anonymity felt kind of weird to me, right? That like, you don't know who the donor is and you have no way of being in touch when like, it just all felt backwards to me, very old school. And so I was like pretty turned off by it. And my sister actually said to me, Hey, like I have two beautiful kids. Like I'd give my, I'll never forget. She said, I would give my left arm for you to be a mom someday. Like, why don't I freeze my eggs and donate them to you so that you have them going into that surgery. So if you wake up with no ovaries, you know, those eggs are there. And that's what she did. And so pretty amazing. Um, So she went through the whole procedure. She did. Yeah. She did egg retrieval. Yep. And we did the whole like, you know, psych eval process to make sure we're both understanding what was happening and all of that. Mm -hmm. 
and we did the paperwork and you know legal agreement for her to turn those over to me. Yeah. Okay. So let's and, yeah let's slow it down for the audience for just a minute yeah. because there's a lot of people listening right now that are like maybe it, they're listening to this episode because they are single or they mm -hmm. are queer or they have a rare disease or there is something that that they know that this like that going the egg route okay of matching or adopting or you know what's the what's the term everyone like I've always used it used egg adoption like what is the yeah. term I think it's like working with an egg donor or okay. um becoming you know like growing your family through egg donation yeah. I don't, I really hate a lot of the other terms out there. I know. I was like, that's why I want to make sure I'm using yeah. the appropriate yeah. language. Um, yeah. So, so working with an egg donor, cause I have had several clients that had, um, and, and I don't, they use the word adoption. So it was like an embryo adoption where it also had already been fertilized where they needed both a donation um, or a, a matching of sperm and egg. And so I want to be clear the, that when we're talking on the rest of this podcast, right, Lauren, mm -hmm. we're only talking about egg, right? Yes. We're not talking about embryos, yeah. right? We're just talking about egg. Yeah. Um, so it becomes quite complicated because there are lots of different reasons that people are going Absolutely. this route. And we've just even named a few, Okay. So for those that are, are thinking for the first, they're listening and they're like, I have never heard of this. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about the old model before we get mm -hmm. into co-fertility, yeah. your model, totally. your model, because it yeah. is unique. It is unique to co-fertility. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, my doula clients, I have one actually pregnant right now. Um, and it was her partner's sperm and mm -hmm. she, uh, matched with an egg donor and they're due in February. And we've had a lot of conversations leading up to this podcast episode about yeah. what that experience was like. Mm -hmm. And the anonymity piece seemed to be the hardest. It seemed like they wanted to enter and have the option to enter into a relationship to know more information about the person they would be um, sharing or working with. And so will you just tell me a little bit more about for you what wasn't working? Yeah. That, And then we'll drive into yeah. how that led to starting a company, yes. starting and launching a company that was yeah. different. Yeah. Well, so, so much of what put me off, I mentioned, right, is this idea that it's transactional, right? And <clears throat> excuse me, what's interesting is that in 2021, Harvard actually did a study of donor conceived people who, you know, have now grown up and are able to share their own opinion about that experience. Mm -hmm. And over 60% of them were bothered by the idea that their parents paid for their genetics, right? Like paid their donor. And to me, it's like, I don't fault, you know, the fertility industry for doing that years ago, because they did the best they could. They did what they thought they had to do. But now that we have that data and we have the opinion of people who have grown up as donor conceived, 
I think it's on us to do better. Right. And so that fuels so much of what my team and I think about every day of like, what is best for the donor conceived person? And how do we make sure that we're considering them and their feelings and all of this? Um, but also that like, when somebody is doing this for cash compensation, they're also inclined to do it multiple times. And those eggs are going to multiple different families. And then your child ends up having multiple biological half siblings out there that are harder to track down. Right. And so again, like the incentives don't really feel aligned. Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to just, there's so much to say about this topic, but I think to circle back to my own story, I just want to like tie it, tie it up. Ultimately I ended up having three surgeries total and they were able to preserve my ovaries. And so I didn't lose my ovaries. I did have peace of mind from having my sister's eggs, but ultimately my experience was one where I was able to conceive my daughter without using my sister's eggs, but I never stopped thinking about egg donation and egg freezing in general, right? It was like this feeling that like I I birthed this baby, which is another story for another day, but holding her in my arms and I'm like, gosh, I love to work and I love building things. You know, I had built Uber Health, which is the healthcare arm of Uber. Like I, I think so much impact can be driven through digital health, especially. And if I'm going to spend my time working, I want to give as many people this like feeling that I have right now in my bones of like, wow, look at this miracle baby. Right. And I just believe that everybody who wants to be a parent should be a parent. And so I decided that's how I had to spend my time. And so um, for me, I felt that intended parents like needed better options, more options, right? It's really hard to find diverse donors. It's hard to find a donor that's as unique as you are, which is ultimately what every intended parent wants, whether they're coming to the table needing an egg donor because they are in a same-sex relationship or because they're a single parent or because they struggle with fertility issues. Like there's so many reasons. It doesn't matter. Like they deserve to be a parent, right? And I think that having more options and feeling like they aren't settling for an egg donor is something that I really wanted to do. And so my co-founders and I came together with this goal in mind um, but also with the goal in mind that like, you know, one of my co-founders always says, she's like, I did a lot of cool things in my twenties, but like my biggest regret is that egg freezing wasn't one of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, but the problem is one, she didn't know she should freeze her eggs then. And even if she knew that she should, she couldn't have afforded it. Right. Like egg freezing is cost prohibitive when the best time to freeze your eggs is when you can least afford it, right? The younger you are, the greater your egg quality, the greater your egg quantity, but it's so expensive. And so at CoFertility, what we're doing, and you alluded to this before, Mm -hmm. is instead of paying cash compensation for egg donation, our donors keep half of the eggs retrieved when they donate the other half to intended parents. And so this way, if the donor experiences infertility later in life, she's put eggs away. And in the process, she's helping another family grow. And so it's something where there's more like aligned incentives for everyone. And we're able to attract women who otherwise, I think we often hear this, that like 
they always thought egg donation would be a great thing to do, but the idea of getting paid for it felt off-putting and that's why they didn't do it. But this just feels like, oh, wow, I'm helping myself and helping someone else at the same time. Mm -hmm. This is aligned also with surrogacy um, because I'm a doula and I kind of hang in the birth worker circles. Um, many birth workers are also volunteer surrogates and because mm-hmm. they're off put by the idea of that being a paid service. Like if someone wants to be a parent, they want to help give access to that person being able to be a parent. Um, so let's go into like the think tank. You said you had co-founders, right? So mm-hmm. I would love to learn a little bit more about like, there you were, you knew you felt icky with the way that things were being yeah. done and how just outdated it was. And yeah. There wasn't a fresh perspective or fresh thinking. So how'd you find your co-founders and yeah. how did you get into a think tank? Like, what did that look like <laughs> of putting your minds together and coming up with this particular concept? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I knew deeply that I wanted to build something in the fertility space, um, but I didn't know what. I knew which problems like I cared most about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where you have to start, right? Like start with what problem are you never going to get sick of trying to solve? And like, will you always just like want to be thinking about when you're taking a shower or want to be thinking about when you're walking around your block? <laughs> What is the problem that like captivates you? So I knew what that was. The craziest and weirdest thing happened though. So I was finishing up my maternity leave. I knew I had been at Uber for over eight years. And I was like, okay, it's time. Like I need to need to move on from this. And I gave notice without a plan, which is like very unlike me, but I knew I needed to like let it go for something new to come in. And literally within like a day of giving notice. I didn't put it on LinkedIn, didn't put it on Instagram, didn't do anything. I got a DM from my now co-founder, Hallie, who we barely knew each other. We like peripherally, we had a ton of like respect for one another in the digital health space. Um, she knew me from building Uber health. I knew her, she had started rock health, which was one of the first digital health funds before digital health was cool. Um, she also started a company called natalist, which you may have heard of, which makes pregnancy tests, ovulation kits, um, prenatal vitamins, things like that. She had just sold that company to Everly well. And she DM'd me and was like, Hey, we like, we're Instagram friends, right? Like she DM me, she's like, Hey, heard your fundraising. Like, how's it going? I was like, what? Like, I'm not fundraising. <laughs> um, I don't have a business, but, um, if any, she's also an investor, right? So I was like, if any of your company portfolio companies are hiring, like, let me know. And she was like, you're on the market. It's like, yeah, I just gave notice yesterday. And she's like, what's your phone number? I'm calling you. Like, I remember telling my husband, like, uh, Ali Teco is calling me like, what? Like, I just had so much ad- like admiration for her. And she said to me, I've been sitting on an idea for a few years now and the timing never felt right. And I think the world is ready for it. And that's what it was. She was, she was right. Right. Like this idea that egg freezing is this incredible science, right? Mm -hmm. That it, the experimental label was lifted in 2012, right? So it is becoming more mainstream. Mm -hmm. I think, especially following the pandemic, more and more people like really started to do it and just to say, you know what, like 
I don't want to have regrets. I want to like live my life on my own terms and I want to like go for it. Right. I think there's been such an uptick of egg freezing, but it's still cost prohibitive for so many people. Mm-hmm. But what if we do it in a way that also solves this huge problem for intended parents that need an egg donor, right? Especially knowing, I think, and this is a point that Hallie made back then, which was like the women who are in the age group of donation now, right? Between the ages of 21 and 34 are, you know, Gen Z and like, you know, young millennials, right? They are so understanding that the way we build and grow families today is more dynamic than it ever has been right? Like maybe they're part of the LGBTQ community, or maybe they have friends who were donor conceived, or, you know, they just like get it more than previous generations. And so the time really felt like now to do this and to bring this company to bear. And so Hallie was the one who had been like thinking about it for years. And she had no idea that my sister had donated eggs to me. And so when I told her that she was like, Oh my God, Lauren, this is it. Let's go. And so at the time I had been talking with a bunch of other companies thinking about, you know, what kind of role I wanted to take and like everything else felt like nothing to me. Mm-hmm. And this felt like everything. And so, um, Hallie had previously done some partnerships with our third co-founder Ariel, um, who had built a fertility, like content site and, um, community on social and just like felt like a part of what we needed to bring this all together. And we hit it off really like easily, you know? And so it just happened from there. Yeah. So worlds are colliding for me right now too. Like as you're talking, um, last year I interviewed the CEO of modern fertility Afton Vetchery. I'm assuming you run in that same space um, with Afton. And one of the things we really talked about is yes, that 21 to 34 well, even younger sometimes with with understanding fertility is having affordable access to understanding what your fertility needs are. So I see mm-hmm. like where Afton's company kind of came totally. came in and served a, a really unique role compared to like very predatory pricing um, when and making people wait, um, especially if they were in heteronormative like relationships, like having P and V relations and seeing what happened. And they were like, well, and then a year, like, no. So, so that whole conversation has been kind of in my mind as I work mostly with fertility clients in North Carolina as a birth doula, right? Like I'm seeing them through their fertility journey, through their entire pregnancy, into their birth and postpartum period. And then my sister comes to me who's queer and Mm -hmm. she is turning 30 in January and she's single and she's single and queer. And all Mm -hmm. she wants, she was like you, Lauren, all she wants is to be a mom. She's known yeah. it from, from you know, just her whole entire life. And now you just said that window, 21 to 34. Well, in her mind, she has never accumulated the wealth to be able to freeze her eggs, which she's wanted to do for a very, very long time. And now she's turning 30 and, like, she's starting to freak out. And Instagram pops up with co-fertility and she, she calls me and she's like, what do you know about this company? 
And I'm like, I don't know anything about this company. So, but let's, let's dig into them. Let's like, let's learn. Let's see how you seem to be the very target audience or one of the target audiences that they are looking to meet with. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping you would kind of take me on a co-fertility journey and use my sister as a test case. So if you have a 29 year old female, soon to be 30, single, queer, and she is saying, you know, I don't have $10,000 to go this old traditional route. $10,000, not even including storage. Yeah. And like you said, um, you know, she has blonde hair and blue eyes, right? Like maybe <laughs> that's really important. It's funny. Like you guys that know me on Instagram, I am very Jewish with dark hair and curly hair. And then my sister Same. is like very, Same. very blonde hair and blue eyes. We look like that's we couldn't so even. Um, but if it's like very important to her, you know, yeah. then the price goes up, up, up. So l- let's use her as a test case with co-fertility. Cool. She reaches yeah. out. What, yeah. what happens when she reaches out to co-fertility? Yeah. So first I want to mention that we, you would think most of the women who come through our programs are single mm-hmm. and I'm surprised by, I mean, there are absolutely a ton of single women who do, but I'm surprised by how many have partners that are choosing to go through this and sort of make a decision as a couple that they're not ready yet to have a baby and that they want to do this for their own future together, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this idea that egg freezing is only for single women is just like not a thing anymore. And I'm really like happy to see that. Um, but let's say she, can you tell me your sister's first name? Her name's Abby. Okay. Hi, Abby. Um, so Abby is interested. She sees one of our ads. Um, we encourage people to come to our website as a first step, which has like a bit of a, a quiz, if you will, to get started. And it's really to help understand like, what are their goals and which of our two programs are they a good fit for? So we have two programs. One is called keep one is called split. Split is the one that I've mentioned so far where um, you have the opportunity to freeze your eggs for free, store them for free for up to 10 years when you donate half of the eggs retrieved to intended parents. However, not everybody is interested in egg donation and that's totally cool. It should not be something that you have to like convince yourself to do, right? Like this is a lifelong choice that you're making and it has to be something that like fully feels in alignment with who you are. Right. And if it doesn't like you shouldn't do it. Um, there's also people who don't qualify for our split program. And so I just want to mention that because we follow the FDA and ASRM guidelines around egg donation. And so ASRM is the American society for reproductive medicine. Um, there are clinical requirements, right? Like you have to meet certain standards in terms of like your medical history, your family medical history. Like there are things that are totally outside of your control that might disqualify you from the process. And it's just important to know that like not everybody makes it through because of that. So that's part of what our KEEP program is for. Our KEEP program is where you, we still wanna help you find a way to freeze your eggs, um, but you keep 100% of them. It is self-pay. However, we have partnerships that we have been able to negotiate on behalf of our KEEP members to help lower the cost, right? So 
Um, when you think about the average cost, and you said 10,000, I think that's actually kind of low, the average cost in the US to do an egg freezing cycle with all of the medication with storage is actually more in the $15,000 to $20,000 range. Um, and storage costs really vary depending on where you are in the country and like what you're, how long you want to store them for. Are as an example, if you wanted to freeze your eggs through the KEEP program in New York City, you could do the retrieval, the medication included, and five years of storage for $11,000. Um, and we have like financing partners that you can work with to sort of almost like do a fertility loan of sorts, right? Where you, they pay on your behalf and then you pay them monthly. So different things that we can work out to give people more options through the KEEP program. But that quiz that I mentioned, right? So Abby's filling out that quiz. It's sort of like a way for us to just gauge, like, is this a person who's a good candidate for the split program or are they, you know, only qualifying for KEEP, right? Say she does qualify for the split program, which it sounds like she would already. Um, she would then fill out like a full application, right? She would tell us more about her at, you know, both her medical history, your family medical history, but also about her like lifestyle and behavioral factors, right? Like, does she do drugs? Does she, you know, take care of her body? Does she like all of these types of questions? Um, and then my favorite section is actually personality and motivations. This is like helping us to understand like one, is she comfortable with the idea of donation, but also like, who is she as a person, right? We use this application to help create a profile where once she's approved, an intended parent would be able to check out her profile and decide if she's the right fit for them. And so it's really a way for us to get like a window into who she is. Um, we spent months designing this application. Um, we feel that, yes, of course, it asks questions like eye color and hair color. And of course, we would want photos of her from throughout her life. But intended parents care about so much more than just someone's physical attributes, right? They... Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I hear from intended parents like, oh my gosh, we had the same favorite book and I just knew she was the one, right? Like mm -hmm. asking questions like that matters so much, right? Because you're looking for some sort of connection and what is a connection point for you might be totally different than what is for somebody else. And so we try to pull on different threads to help foster those connections and make it so clear to someone like who the right fit is. Did your psychological evaluation that you and your sister did help you kind of shape some of those questions? Like, were you like, they didn't yeah. ask us this and they should have <laughs> asked think, us that. Yeah. So I think my sister's donation to me was a little bit different in that it was very much like a directed known donation where like, I, we know everything about each other already kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, we do have a, an amazing fertility psychologist on our medical advisory board who helped us design this as well. Okay. Um, and yeah, we definitely like, I mean, we spent so much time on this. We asked so many people who had worked with an egg donor, like what about her profile? Like made you know that she was the one and, you know, pull on all of those different things that we heard. Um, and did it in a way that I think it's kind of fun for women to fill out, right? Like, I think, you know, you're thinking about yourself in a different way. Like sometimes we've asked questions. They're like, oh yeah, like 
one of the donors forgot to tell us that she was like valedictorian of her high school class. And I was like, that's super, like, she's like, I forgot. Like, you know, it's like nice to bring up, you know, parts of your past that someone else might be interested to learn about. Um, but um, once that application is fully filled out, um, Abby would meet with someone on our team to um, get to know the process a little bit more for us to like confirm she is who's in her photos. Um, and also to make sure that she's like totally understanding of what the process looks like. She then um, signs an agreement with co-fertility. That's like, yes, I understand like what I am signing up for. Um, and then we list her profile and um, some people match like within 30 minutes of getting listed on the platform. I think more typical is like being listed for a few weeks. Sometimes it could be a few months. Um, it really varies. Like I honestly, I believe it's, it's, and I said this before that like intended parents are looking for someone who's as unique as they are. And so it doesn't, it's hard to predict like who will match when, right? Because you don't know what an intended parent is going to be looking for. Um, In and the so, split program. Yeah. So say Abby were to enter into this split program or whatever. Yeah. Does that mean that she has to wait for her egg retrieval until she has a match with an intended parent? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. And at any time, if someone is like, eh, I've been waiting for longer than I expected, they can switch to the keep program and we'll help them do that. Um, it's like totally like a, however long you feel comfortable. Sure. Um, but we want them to be like ready because sometimes they match really fast, yeah. you know? Um, and then I yeah. have a question about like going back to being a donor conceived person and kind of keeping yes. that, that part of the, you know, 50% of that donor conceived yeah. person is an egg right yeah. there. And having that person in mind, one of my very good friends is a donor conceived person. It gets quite complicated, you guys, in dating because it turns out that the donor, like you said, there was so many what she calls diblings, like donor yeah. siblings or so many donor diblings siblings, yeah. that before and kind of in a cluster of an area, she didn't feel comfortable even going um, really into a serious relationship dating without doing a 23 and me profile. So yeah, there's a lot so, of complications for yeah. the donor conceived person. So for, with co-fertility, um, back to like what happens next, right? Yeah. Like say you match, we first are, you, every match gets assigned a member advocate on my team. Yeah. The member advocate will meet with the intended parents to confirm their preferences for the match. And so included in that is whether or not they wanna have a disclosed relationship with the donor where they share contact information, names, et cetera, okay. and whether or not they wanna have a match meeting, right? A match meeting is where they get on a Zoom with the member advocate and the donor together and they have the opportunity to meet each other. And this is not something that all egg donation companies do, but we find intended parents and donors are really excited about and really want to do. And this gets at what you're talking about, because I think one of the biggest like things that people considering egg donation wonder about is like, oh, or like are afraid of is this idea that they're going to like walk down the street one day and see someone who looks like them and be like, is that my offspring? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, is that the person that came from my egg donation? Right. 
And unfortunately, the way egg donation has been done in the past, like that's a real concern, right? This idea of anonymity, this idea that like you'll never hear from the child or, or vice versa, like you don't literally there are women who like do an egg retrieval for an egg bank. Those eggs are divided into lots of six. So maybe they have 30 eggs retrieved. They get divided into lots of six. So there's five families that can be helped with one egg retrieval. And then they do it five more times, right? So that's 25 families, right? So it's hard. And then they don't even hear if a baby was born. They don't know where that baby is. They don't know any of it, right? That's not our vibe. Like we are really upfront with donors and intended parents that things like 23andMe exist, right? So even if the donor herself never does a genetic test someday, if her like great uncle has done one, there is a good chance that she could be found, right? And so if you know that, and we share that up front, typically, and we see, I think it's almost 90% of our matches have been disclosed because they're like, if I could be found someday anyway, and if there's benefit for the donor conceived child and benefit, honestly, for the donor's own children someday, mm-hmm. right? To know that they have biological half siblings out there, yeah. that having an open, honest, like ability to contact one another is very beneficial. And so that's how it's done. And, and even if someone does choose an undisclosed relationship, which we want to honor, I think, I think sometimes it's a cultural reason that people decide to go that route, or maybe someone's just had like so much loss and so much on their journey to becoming, to getting this far, that it's like too much for them. We respect that. And we want them to be in the driver's seat around that. We just want them to know that it's possible that someone finds out. Right. Um, and so we don't even use the word anonymous. Like it's just not possible, but I think that like this model, because these donors are not in it for cash, right? They're not going to go do this six times. They're not trying to help 25 families with their eggs. They're hoping to help one, maybe two, right? So it's like a very different approach where this fear of like, am I dating my half sibling is less of a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, now I've got a couple of questions about um, like logistics, right? So somebody, I'm, I work in the fertility space, but again, as a birth worker and a lot of my clients that go through egg retrievals, it looks very different, right? So sometimes, like you said, there could be 30 eggs retrieved and then other times, let's say an odd number five. Yeah. Right. Um, And so you kind of mentioned right there that there might be one intended uh, family, but there could be another intended, like, yeah, I think so. So for us, one retrieval is one family. Okay. Um, And some, what we find is that we really are all about like honoring the goals of both parties. Right. So say you have um, a recipient or intended parent who Maybe they have one child, they experienced secondary infertility when trying for baby two, and they found they needed to use an egg donor or work with an egg donor for their second baby. They go through a split cycle with us. They end up with, you know, maybe it's three or four beautiful embryos, and they don't need to do a second cycle because they're able to achieve their goals with that one retrieval. However, say the donor that they worked with or the split member that they worked with is a a medical resident and she is somebody who wants to have two to three children someday, but she knows that based on where she is in her training, 
that it's going to be eight to 10 years before she can even get started having children. And she knows that to have three kids, she's going to get older during that process. And so she might say, I want to put away more eggs for my future. She may, and we give the opportunity to do this. She may decide that she wants to be relisted on the platform to match with a second family. So we're not looking at like, how many families can we divide one lot or one like retrieval into? It's more like, what are her goals? And does she want to go back on the platform? Um, Some intended parents though, come to us and they want to have two to three kids. And they ask the donor up front, like, Hey, would you be willing to do two cycles? Um, I will mention though, I think when you're in this process, part of what we do once the match is confirmed um, and we believe in mutual matches, we feel the donor should be able to say like, yes, I want to move forward with this as well, rather than like having no idea where the eggs are going. Um, She um, goes in for more clinical testing, right? So we want to make sure her antifolical count is looking good compared with her AMH, which tells us about her ovarian reserve. Um, We want to make sure that she's someone who is a good candidate for a split cycle. If at that point, the doctor looked at her and said, ooh, looks like you're somebody who might only retrieve five eggs. At that point, we would rematch the intended parents with another donor. um, And we would talk with that donor about our KEEP program. Okay. Right. So not everyone is a good fit all the way through, but we do our best to make sure they can still meet their goals. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, cause that's something that I've learned a lot about is like, totally. um, you know, we've had some clients that had a very low number in the retrieval process and then some that had very high numbers in the retrieval process. And so let didn't know if it, the number was 30, you know, um, I'm assuming split is, are we going, is it 50, 50 here? And if it's 50, 50, if there's an odd egg, the odd egg goes to the intended parent, to the intended parent. Okay. And then mm-hmm. that option to do more than one cycle. That's all really good information. Again, I'm just got Abby in my mind. I'm like walking through like all the different things. Um, I want, because we are recording this podcast in 2023, when the, I think top three podcast right now out is the retrievals. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have heard this story about this yeah. nurse at Yale University who was stealing fentanyl and um, women were undergoing egg retrieval process and it was very painful. And the whole and I listened to the whole podcast and it was very, very emotional, super triggering, all of that. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that like I'm mentioning on this podcast that when you said Mm -hmm. like the medicines, there are medicines for um, like hormonal medicines that um, for, well, if you're doing egg donation or egg freezing or both, that would be taken, but also it is understood. And I want to make sure that we say this on record. It is understood that that procedure should be done with proper medications under some sort of anesthesia or twilight with, um, and it should not be very, it sh- you should not be experiencing a lot of pain during an egg retrieval process. So I just wanted to make no. sure we said it's that. Just, like what happened in that podcast is awful. Mm-hmm. And I have so much like empathy for the women who went through that. It's, it's gut wrenching. Um, that is not 
what the experience looks and feels like as the standard of care. Right. And I, I appreciate that podcast that it, like that, that story was told because I think it puts fertility clinics and doctors and all of the people, you know, running clinics like on high alert for other incidents like that. And hopefully like makes them hear people faster. You know what I mean? Right. Like, but that is not the standard of care. And I, I, the one fear that I have is that that podcast will like deter women from getting care that is like so important and can be really empowering for them. Yeah. And that was a fear of mine. And that's why I wanted to make sure I brought it up because we had an opportunity to like spread the word that egg, when you go into an egg retrieval, you should be under the understanding that that is not going to be a painful procedure because you will be given adequate uh, anesthesia and medications. Yes. Um. So a couple more questions that I have for you, Lauren, like moving through this process is there, uh, you know, we use the word embryo only one time. So I want to be clear that we really are at co-fertility. You're focusing on um, the egg retrieval process. Okay. But there is another component yes. <laughs> that comes yeah. into play. And so I was one, just really curious, like what happens next? Like, yeah. um, so maybe people are coming to co-fertility and, um, where they have access to sperm and mm-hmm. some others may come to co-fertility where they do not have access to sperm. And so what does that look like? Yeah. So, so on the intended parent side, right? Like, like they just to, I know we talked about Abby's experience, but let's talk about an intended parents for a mm-hmm. second. Um, when they join our platform, it's free to create an account. They are able to browse different donors. When they see someone they want to move forward with, they put a deposit down to take her off the platform so that no other intended parent can match with her while we confirm the mutual match. Okay. Um, oftentimes once the there's clinical clearance and they move through the process, At the time of the retrieval, the intended parents get their half of the eggs. Those are typically fertilized right away to create embryos. They, at that point, can decide, do they want to do a fresh transfer? Do they want to freeze those embryos? Do they want to do further genetic testing? Like what they will work that out in terms of like what feels like the right next step once we have these embryos. For the donor, you know, the part that we are covering the cost of, right? Is the egg retrieval, freezing those eggs and putting them in long-term storage. So for up to 10 years, if the split member donor wants to create embryos, maybe she has access to sperm that, you know, is either from a partner or, you know, a donor that she wants to work with. She absolutely has the opportunity to fertilize those eggs right away. The cost of doing so is on her, right? Just because it's outside of our standard program, but we absolutely can work with her to talk with the clinic where the cycle is happening and make sure she understands what her options are. Um, a lot of women ask us like, should I freeze eggs or embryos? And it's a super personal decision. Um, and it has to do with where you feel like you are in life and you know, what you have in front of you. Um, we've seen, um, we've even seen like married women who are like, you know what, like nothing lasts forever. I'm going to freeze eggs, (laughs) right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to be aware of what feels right for you, but you can't unfertilize an egg once it becomes an embryo. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So you got to be sure about whoever sperm you're using. Yeah. And then what happens with unused? Like, like in your sister's case, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Those would be unused, frozen yeah. eggs. Yeah. How do you dispose yeah. of them? Or do you dispose yeah. of them? So, well, I think a few things can happen, right? And I, I think that there's really three options. One is like making sure you don't need them, right? So in my case, I still find comfort knowing that those eggs are there in case we need them someday, right? And recently my sister reminded me like she now has a third child <laughs> and she was like, those eggs are yours. Like I'm, she's like, three isn't up for me. Um, but I think like keeping them until you feel sure, which is why I'm really excited that we're able to offer, we offer five-year storage and 10-year storage at really discounted rates for people because you don't necessarily know until you know that you're done, right? Mm -hmm. Like done having kids. And so I think feeling like you're not breaking the bank to keep those eggs on ice or keep your embryos on ice is like a really nice thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, one, I think once you know, like then there are three different options. One is um, disposing of them, which is something that you can typically do with the storage facility. Two is donating them to science, right? There's a lot of, of developments that are happening in the space that really would benefit from more people donating both eggs and embryos. And then the third is donating them to an intended parent who's looking for eggs, right? And that's something that, um, you know, reach out to us, right? Like, let's talk about it. I think um, it's probably something that we don't see much of today in 2023, because I think the people who froze their eggs years ago are still in the process of deciding whether or not they want to use those eggs. Yeah. But I think in the coming years, I think over the next three to five years, more of the people who froze their eggs years ago will get to that point where they're like, okay, I'm done having babies. And I maybe didn't have to use my eggs or, you know, didn't use all of them or whatever it might be. Um, and at that point we'll have, we'll see an influx of this, right. Where more people are like, Hmm, I can help another family if I do something with these eggs. Mm -hmm. So why 34, why is 34 a cutoff? 34 is a cutoff, not because I chose it. Um, it is a cutoff because that is the recommendation of the American society of reproductive medicine. I think, um, it's pretty, widely studied that at age 35, a woman's fertility starts to decline, not necessarily drastically until the age of 40, really, but really beginning at age 35. And so to make sure that, you know, I think an intended parent is really investing a lot in this process and to make sure that they're investing in the process with eggs that are likely to be of great quality is you know, really the best case scenario. And so that's where that comes from. You can absolutely do the keep program though, if you're over 34, right? Like you should not feel like you can't freeze your eggs if you're over the age of 34. Um, that's just like not true. It's just that you don't qualify to donate. Lauren, thank you for clarifying that the difference between the split and the keep program, because I do know that there are many people listening that are over the age of 34 that are still candidates for egg retrieval, of course, but you would be going into the keep program, not the split program. 
Lauren, I'm enjoying this conversation so much. I'm learning a lot. I know the audience is learning a lot. Abby, shout out. I know she's listening. Like this episode was for Abby and all the other people out there that are needing this route of fertility to become parents. And so I'm so thankful for this conversation. Um, One of the things I wanted to kind of tackle at the end was the experience of egg retrieval. As fertility doulas in North Carolina, specifically my work partner, Colin, she was the first fertility doula in North Carolina. And we are part of the egg retrieval process. And I was wondering, does co-fertility have a support system in place, emotional and Mm -hmm. physical support systems for preparing for the retrieval, being present during the retrieval, and the um, post-care, post-retrieval? Because that's something we offer as fertility doulas, and I was wondering what that looks like at co-fertility. I love that you asked this one. And two, I love that you guys do that. We have a private online community for our Freeze by Co members. So whether you are part of the Keep or Split program, you can be a member of this community. And it's really awesome to see people going through it, engage with one another, right? Ask questions of like, you know, did you use an ice pack before or after the shots? Or, you know, what was traveling for your retrieval like? Did you have to travel? Was it local to you? You know, did you meet the intended parents? Like those types of questions and really supporting one another through it. We also have our medical advisors who are in the community. So whether that's tapping into our fertility psychologist, um, we have an OBGYN in there, we have reproductive endocrinologists in there. So experts who can really answer those questions quickly and in a way that is centering around what the experience is like going through it as someone who's preserving their fertility, as opposed to someone who's going through it because of fertility challenges, which I think is a really different position to be in. Um, So that community is amazing. Um, The other piece is really in that member advocate and our member advocates are, they're amazing. Like I like I got teary eyed yesterday in our team all hands because we did a spotlight of a recent match where um, the the match was happening at a clinic in New York City and um, the member advocate who was overseeing the match. So she handled the experience end to end, both for the split member and the intended parents. Um, She decided to like she was the person at the clinic for the donor and for her retrieval. And so, um, she had been working with her for a couple months and then got to meet her in person that day. And then was there when she came out of anesthesia and it was like emotional for both of them. And then later that day, when the intended parents went to give their sperm sample, they all decided to meet in person together. And it was this like really beautiful experience. And I like hearing about it just like made me, I was a total like crying mess on this zoom call. My team was laughing at me, but it's, it's really, you know, sometimes that has to happen virtually, right? Sometimes we can't be, we're a national company and we can't be at every single retrieval in person. We can be there when we, you know, if it's possible, but a lot of times we give that support via text message, via email, via phone call, like all of that is still happening. It's just means a lot. I think when it's the person who's been your constant throughout this process. And so 
Power member advocates are people who have been in the fertility space for a really long time, who've seen a lot and who know how to be that supportive person throughout. Yeah, I love that that is part of your process. As you learned, being one out of 154 people with this rare disease, and you said you had this cool opportunity to have even met a few people, just having an online support group, just having a few people to be in community with can really change you know, outcomes and make better outcomes. Um, That's one of the coolest parts about being a fertility doula is that we do get to see our clients through their fertility journeys. But then when intended parents, be it the surrogate for the intended parent or the birthing person um, is the parent and they become pregnant, then we get to be with them for their entire pregnancy. And then the actual birth And then no matter what that looks like, and then their postpartum period. So um, we have many clients we're with for years. So I love that. Yeah, it is very cool. So what we're doing um, in birth work over here and what co-fertility is doing over here, I really am excited to have a fertility client that is working with co-fertility in the future. So, yes, please. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I think it's great. Now, before we sign off, um, you did have a spontaneous pregnancy. And yeah. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about motherhood and being an entrepreneur and being pulled in a lot of different directions, um, what your birth was like. So just anything you want to yeah. share, I would love yeah. to to sign off on that note. Yeah. I like have, I love being a mom and I love being her mom, you know, like I don't know any other way to put it. Um, there are days that are harder than others where I'm like, should I answer these 10 emails or should I shut my computer and go play in her, you know, mini kitchen with her. Right. And, and there are constant, like, questions like that and trade-offs and things like that. And I just like try to make the best decision I can in that moment. And, um, I feel very lucky that I have a super supportive partner in all of this. Um, he cares so much about what I'm building and feels like it's something that, you know, we get to do together. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know. Being being a entrepreneur and a parent to a young child is not for the faint of heart, but I can't imagine it any other way, right? Like she's the best part of every single day and I just want everyone else to who wants that to feel that way. Yeah. Like to get that. Mm-hmm. Your passion for what you do and I'm assuming the same is with your co-founders as well, like you're just fully alive talking about 
the opportunity of really the gift of co-fertility um, as it's not just, it's not a business, right? I mean, it is a business, right? Yeah. But it's, it's a community, it's a partnership, it's love, it's, it's a gift. And so I've really enjoyed getting to learn about this process and how you're being innovative and using younger thinking and more, um, open thinking and, there's really needed to be a space for those, uh, a better space for those on a fertility journey, whether they're in the queer community, whether they have a rare disease that they are trying to avoid passing on some sort of genetics. I mean, there are so many reasons. And yeah. I really hope that co-fertility and you and your co-founders like have tremendous, tremendous success and I would love to follow up this podcast um, with, you know, I don't know if anyone would ever be open to it, but if one of the donors or the intended families were ever open to sharing their birth story, if it gets to that birth story place, um, I'd really love that full circle moment sometime. So I'll just put that out in the universe. <laughs> I am here for that. I love that idea. Yeah. Um, I will definitely keep that in mind. Perfect. Lauren, thank you for being on the Birth Story podcast. Now, how does everyone find co-fertility? What's the best way? Like Abby was scrolling through Instagram and found yeah. you, but how do we seek you out? Yeah. So I think if you are on the side of the intended parent who is exploring egg donation, you can find us on Instagram at family by co and on our website, cofertility.com slash family. If you are on the side of someone like Abby, who's interested in egg freezing with cofertility or just like learning more about your fertility, right? Like you don't have to be sure of which way you want to go or how you want to do it on Instagram. We're at freeze by co and on our website, cofertility.com slash freeze. And if you just want to like talk to me. I love like my favorite part of what I get to do is talking to our members. So, um, I'm at Lauren Mackler, L A U R E N M A K L E R. Like just find me, send me a note. Let's chat. Thank you so much for that. I hope you have a great day and I appreciate your time on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to birth story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.